All right, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about marriage and uh, what real marriage looks like and what real marriage is about. And this morning, what I want to um, start with is a story of a daring escape that happened several hundred years ago. It was Easter morning. And on this Easter Sunday morning, instead of preparing for worship like they normally would do, twelve nuns climbed into fish barrels to be smuggled out of the convent. Now, the question is, why in the world were they doing it? Well, they were doing it based on a call to action from a heroic guy named Martin Luther. Anybody ever heard of Martin Luther? Not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther. Anybody heard? Okay, Martin Luther was a, a... Martin Luther really is one of the most important figures in history. He was a monk. He was a, a guy that had given his life to doing the way that the church said you ought to be the most holy man possible. Um, he lived from 1483 to 1546. To give you an idea, he lived at the same time as guys like Copernicus, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Christopher Columbus. He lived during that time frame. And after a powerful encounter with God one day, Martin Luther decided he was going to give up everything and go and serve the Lord. He had these terrifying dreams, he had these terrifying things. He, he was almost struck by lightning and he said, I'm going to go and follow the Lord. As he was following the Lord, he began to read the Bible and he began to realize that he was never going to live up to what the Bible called him to do. And so he lived over and over again these nightmares of trying to be what God wanted him to be. Suddenly he began to discover that what the church had been teaching him was not what the Bible had been teaching. And so he got together 95 things that he was upset with about the church or he thought was wrong with the church based on the Bible. Reading through the book of Galatians and other things, he got all this stuff together. And so he got these 95 things and there was this church in a town called Wittenberg and he went and he posted it, nailed it to the door of the church. Now, um, today it would be like putting that out on public broadcast or sticking it on a Facebook wall and saying, these are the things I'm really concerned about. And people from everywhere came around and they read it and they discussed it. One of the things that he was particularly disagreeing with about the church was their idea that the most holy life was a life without marriage. And so he started to write about these kind of things, that marriage was good, that the Bible said marriage was good. Luther began to teach that people ought to get married, even ministers ought to be able to get married. And he wrote all this into a book called On Monastic Vows, and he condemned the life he had been living. Well, there was a convent where 12 nuns got past these tracks kind of without anybody knowing. And these were all young nuns. They were in their late teens, early 20s, and they decided they believed Luther and they wanted to escape the convent. There's only one problem. Helping a nun escape a convict, a convict, or convent, whatever. Helping a nun escape was a crime punishable by death. 
So they wrote Martin Luther and said, we want to escape. We believe what you believe. Can you help us? And so he arranged for a guy that was delivering food on Easter morning to bring along 12 extra fish barrels. And the women at the crack of dawn escaped over the wall and got into the fish barrels and were taken away from the convent. Well, then Martin Luther felt it was his priority to help these women get back into life. And so three of them, their families, even though they, they, they shouldn't, the families took them back in, but nine of them, their families would not take them back in. And so Martin Luther set out to get them married off. And one by one, the nuns got married, except for one. There was one nun in particular, her name was Catherine, and Catherine was, um, according to all that it was written, the least attractive and most stubborn of the bunch. And nobody wanted to marry her. Luther could not get her married off. In fact, he got her engaged one time to a guy, and the guy called it off weeks before the wedding and said, I just can't go through with it. Well, Catherine came to Luther and she said, Martin Luther... My mother died when I was six years old, and I went into the convent when I was eight. I became a nun at 16, and in my adult life, I have disavowed everything I once knew, have escaped the convict, convent, and am in... It's just a little slip, you know? Freudian slip, all right? I've escaped, and now I am here, and it is your responsibility to get me a husband. And if... You cannot find me a husband. You're single. And you will be it. Now, that's pretty bold for any woman in any age. Any age of history, but very bold in that day and time. When someone said something to Luther, said, sounds like you're going to marry that girl. He said, good God, no. God will never give me a wife. Especially her. In fact... He didn't really like her. He he wrote about her that there was another girl that he really liked in that group, but he got her married off first thing. And so he had this dilemma. He didn't know what to do. And the story goes that he surprised everyone. On June 13, 1525, he asked her to marry him. Now, no one really knows why. Some people think it was just to get him get her off his back, alright? She bugged him constantly about this. Well, he asked her to marry him, and she said, yes. And they had a long courtship and were married that afternoon. (laughs) The story is that when his friends found out he had married this girl, they wept bitterly. (laughs) And when they asked Martin Luther, why did you marry her? You know what his response was? To spite the devil. Now, there have been a lot of romantic things said about the way you marry a woman, but despite the devil is probably not at the top of the list, all right? Well, as you can imagine, their marriage called a little bit of an uproar. You see, Martin Luther was the leader of what is called the Protestant Reformation. He was a, an avowed bachelor. He was a guy that had given celibacy and said, even though I think the Bible teaches it's, it's perfectly fine and good to be married, I have given a vow and, and I, I'm just going to stick to that. And so when he got married, word spread very quickly. In fact, one of the things that, uh, that was kind of crazy about their, 
their life was that it was a public scandal. People all around didn't know what to make of it. And another thing that was, was interesting is she got pregnant fairly quickly. And there was this old wives' tale in Germany that the Antichrist would be born from the union of a rebellious nun and a renegade monk. And so suddenly their lives were thrust into that. They ended up having three boys and three girls. They actually had two children that passed away. Catherine went about immediately. Luther was living by himself in a 40-room monastery. And she went in and took over the bachelor pad. All right? He had been sleeping apparently on straw just on the floor that he hadn't changed in years. It was nasty. He had problems with his diet. He didn't eat good. And she planted herbs and gardens and different things for him. And she began to nurse him back to health. The couple's early years were poorly awkward because neither one of them had been around anyone of the opposite sex very much. In fact, Luther wrote one time that she used to just sit beside him while he was deep in study and ask him questions that made no sense. He said one time she even sat beside him and said, Martin, is the Prime Minister of Prussia the Duke's brother? Something that helped them live together was their laughter they shared. They were both brutally honest with each other. In fact... um, Catherine was well known to kind of deal with Martin's depression pretty uh, in, in strange ways. One day, Martin Luther came home from, from teaching, and when he got home, she stood at the door, greeted him in full black dress. Martin had been through a very difficult depression time, and he said, well, what's going on? Did something happen? She said, well, I figured if the great theologian Martin Luther was walking around like God was dead, I might as well join in in the morning. Martin got over his depression pretty quickly, all right? They were able to give back and forth. What's interesting is this marriage that began as nothing more than convenience and something that had to be done grew into this beautiful friendship and this beautiful marriage relationship. Through their years, the Luthers built a genuine friendship. Often in the letters he wrote to different theologians and pastors and teachers, he would say something about Catherine sitting right beside her. He used pet names for her, nicknames, Lord Katie, the Empress, my true love, my sweetheart, a wise woman, a holy lady, dear wife, and my gift from God. When he suffered from different ailments, she nursed him back. When she, he fell into frequent bouts with depression, she would hold him, pray for him, comfort him, and read Scripture. She drove the wagons, looked after the fields, purchased the cattle, rented the horses, sold the linen, helped edit his writings, prepared meals, kept house, raised kids, entertained guests. An incredibly hard worker. Martin used to have to urge her to relax and even offered to pay her to sit down and read the Bible. She would sit in on discussions that Martin Luther had with the greatest theological minds of the time, and she would give input to those discussions. Later in his marriage, this is what he wrote. I am a happy husband, and may God continue to send me happiness from that most gracious woman, my best of wives. Luther's early teaching on marriage simply kind of taught that it was a necessary evil. 
But as he grew in his relationship with Catherine, his perspective changed on what marriage is about. He even said this, the greatest gift of grace a man can have is a pious, God-fearing wife whom he can trust with all his goods, body, and life itself. By the end of his life, Martin Luther had grown to absolutely love the woman that he saw as unattractive and stubborn. You know, reading that story reminds me of the importance of friendship and marriage. Marriage is about friendship. All the talk about spending time and doing life, making memories, being a good listener, growing old, taking care of each other, being honest, having the long view of things, repenting and forgiving can be summed up in one simple word. Friendship. Husbands and wives who want their marriages to be enduring and endearing must be friends. In fact, there's a sociologist out there who can study marriage and can determine with a 90% accuracy whether or not couples will divorce. And in his studies, he says this, the most important factor in whether wives feel satisfied in their marriage by 70% more than anything else is the quality of the friendship they have with their husband. For men... The most important factor in determining whether or not they are happy in their marriage or fulfilled in their marriage by 70% is the quality of their friendship with their wife. This guy actually wrote, so men and women come from the same planet after all. Happy marriages are based on deep friendship, a mutual respect for and enjoyment of each other's company. These couples tend to know each other intimately. They are well versed in each other's likes, dislikes, personality quirks, hopes, and dreams. They have an abiding regard for each other and express their fondness not just in big ways, but in little ways, day in and day out. Friendship fuels the flames of romance because it provides the best protection of being adversarial towards your spouse. Ephesians chapter 5 says this. Verse 31. We're jumping to the end and then we're going to come back to the middle. Chapter 5 verse 31. This is a whole passage about marriage and it says in verse 31, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Does anybody know where that, that quote comes That's not original with Ephesians. It comes from somewhere else in the Bible. Anybody know where it is? Or do your, does it tell you there? Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, right? What's happening in Genesis chapter 2? It's only the second book of the Bible, so it's pretty... Or second chapter of the book, first book of the Bible. It's pretty evident that beginning stuff's happening, Right? Genesis chapter 2, remember Genesis 1? God creates everything, right? He creates the light and separates it from the darkness. He creates the earth. He creates the mountains, the land, the water, the oceans, the birds, the animals. And then the last thing He creates is man. And we look in Genesis 1 and we have over and over again that everything is good. It's good. God created and it was good. And then we get to Genesis chapter 2, and it tells us that after he creates man, he looks down, and there's this shocking thing that's said. That he looks at man, and man is basically lonely. And he says, it is not 
good for man to be alone. Now, the way the original language puts that, it is to be in direct contrast with the greatness of God's creation. And so what he is saying here, and what Paul is reminding us here in Ephesians, is to go back to the original intention for marriage. And one of the original intentions for marriage is friendship. Now, in our world, we've kind of made friendship a low-level kind of thing. And so when we see that marriage is for friendship, that almost seems to cheapen it. But what we're talking about here is not just ordinary, hi, how are you doing friendship, but deep, personal, intimate friendship between two people that can only have that kind of friendship one time. When we look at that original in in Genesis chapter 2, God looks at Adam and says, it is not good for man to be alone. So what does he do? He takes a rib and he makes... Don't have to help me out here. I'm asking, alright? And he does what? He makes a woman. He makes Eve, right? Then he makes Eve. And what does Adam say as soon as he sees Eve? Wow, that's good. It's not the exact NIV or King James Version, but... He gets poetic, doesn't he? I mean, he, he goes into poetry. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There, there are those that say, you know, the original name, the, the reason that women got their name, when, like we say it, which is just women, it was, whoa, man, alright? It's like, wow, this is unbelievable. This is awesome. He, he sees it and we get this picture that God has created them specifically for one another. One of the things that I talk about when I do a, a wedding ceremony is that I ask the couple always, well, what's your story? How did you get together? What was it like? Well, how did you end up together? And I have them write that down because, let me tell you this, usually, and if not, this is kind of a bad sign, a couple never feels like they were brought together for a specific purpose like they do on their wedding day. Years go by, right? Things happen. Kids are born. Jobs are lost. Illnesses come. And at some point in the midst of an argument or a discussion or a realization, you go, why in the world did we ever get together? And what Adam and Eve show us is that God created them for a friendship together. And in those moments when you are in a married When you've been married 10 years, 15 years, 2 years, 25 years, sometimes it's of utmost importance to go back and say, now how did we get together and what was God's involvement there? Verse 31 of Ephesians 5, quoting chapter 2 of Genesis, gives us this amazing thought. It's one of those things that we say at wedding ceremonies and we understand, but we don't always live out. It's the idea that when two people decide to get married, no other relationship in the world matters as much as that relationship. In their culture, for someone to leave their family, the idea is that they were to put them behind and say, this is now my family. You know the uh, things they do at weddings with the... uh, the uh, the unity candle, you know the unity candle, and now there's the unity sand, and you know I don't know you don't need play-doh, I don't know what they do. All right. Uh, funny story, my first wedding I ever performed, I went to get the unity candle to hand to the couple 
And I, it was the first one I ever pour. I didn't know anything. I took the unity candle out to hand it to the guy. And there's a little button on the bottom that releases. So they can put the candle inside this kind of plastic shell. And I accidentally hit the button. As I went here, it went boom and just fell out. And I just handed him the plastic shell. I was like, I don't know what you're going to do with that, but there it is. Well, the idea there behind those ceremonies, right, is that two families are becoming a new family. And from an emotional standpoint, it means that your relationship is now completely wrapped up in each other. That your friendship is the most important friendship that you'll have. Now, the interesting thing about him quoting back to Genesis is, in Genesis, the reason that man is said to won't be lonely when he doesn't have anyone with him is because, I believe, he's created in the image of God. And when he says he's created in the image of God, it says, let us make man in our own image. And the idea is that God is constantly in fellowship with himself. And because of that, we reflect God by having a deep need for a deep friendship in life. So what does that look like in marriage? What does it look like for a man to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, that becoming one flesh, the most intimate of friends, the best friends you can ever imagine? Four things about friendship and marriage, and then we're going to go. We're not going to go, we're going to sing a little bit, but I'll be done. First of all, friendship and marriage should glorify God. Now, in the rest of this chapter 5, the thing that we get over and over is that our job is to bring each other, we'll talk about this in depth in a few minutes, to a place where we are both glorifying and honoring God. Charles Spurgeon once said about his wife that no one will know how grateful I am to God for you. In all I've ever done for the Lord, you have a large share. Not an ounce of power has ever been lost to the good cause to you. I have served the Lord far more and never less because of your sweet friendship. Marriage includes a spouse and often children. But the goal, center, and purpose of marriage is not about the self, the spouse, or the children. The ultimate goal of marriage, as is true of every aspect of our life, is the glory of God. Only when... Our marriage exists for the glory of God and not for the replacement idols we put in our lives. Are we able to truly love and be loved? Your marriage is not about who you should worship, your children or your spouse. Your marriage is about who you worship with. And so, what is the goal of your marriage? What's the purpose of your marriage? Is your marriage right now about glorifying God in whatever field you've been given, in whatever areas you've been done, whatever life has brought your way? Are you glorifying God and who you are in your marriage? Can you imagine how marriages would look differently if from the very beginning the first goal in their life was to glorify God? Not serve the church, not serve each other, not take care of children, but to glorify God. Now the truth is, in glorifying God, you will probably serve the church and take care of your spouse and take care of your children. But the number one goal in friendship and marriage is that. It says that the the reason behind that, even in verse 32 of chapter 5, is that he's talking about Christ and the church, the idea that Christ came to bring us into a place where we would glorify God. In fact, verse 26 of chapter 5, if you're still there, looks at it. It says that a husband ought to love his wife in a way that makes her holy, cleansing her, presenting her to the Lord. 
The idea is that we should glorify God. Here's the second thing about friendship and marriage. Friendship and marriage should be intimate. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined, and the two will become one flesh. The idea in that passage, and the idea in the Bible here, is that it will be an unbreakable union of two people that they cannot share with anybody else. It is an intimate thing. In general, there are um, three kinds of marriage. There's a, a pastor that laid out three kinds of marriages that people find themselves in at any moment. The first kind of marriage is one that is back-to-back. Back-to-back means that they've already turned their backs on one another. They're serving in different places. They may live in the same house. They may have the same checking account. They may drive cars in their names. But they've already turned outward and are looking in different places. The second one is shoulder-to-shoulder. And the picture there is two people standing side by side and moving towards the same thing. So this is the couple that are constantly taking care of the kids, constantly going to work, constantly doing things, that they're always at a task or at a goal. And while they are joined and not back to back, they're not quite fully engaging one another. And the third kind is face to face where they're encountering life together and they're spending time pouring themselves into one another. Now the truth is, most marriages at varying times in their existence have times of being back-to-back, shoulder-to-shoulder, and face-to-face. But the really successful marriages are those that focus on being face-to-face. Now, here's the problem with that, just to be real honest. Females are much better at face-to-face relationships than guys. In fact, most female friendships are face-to-face friendships. Right? They share with each other. They talk with one another. They, they spend hours or minutes a day on the phone having conversations or through emails or meeting up for coffee or tea or just getting together to talk. Most of guys' friendships are shoulder-to-shoulder. Right? We're, we're accomplishing something. We have similar interests. And so, you know, I was thinking about this. My, my best friend growing up is a guy named Stephen. You've heard me talk about Stephen. Stephen and I, um, last summer, we went to the U2 concert. We met up and we had, uh, we had dinner together. We, we met at a place down there. Then we went to the concert. And we sat in 180 degree heat out in the middle of the summer in the U2 concert. And the thing is that we sat there and in the whole course of six hours being together, we may have uttered 20 minutes of real conversation. And it was one of the best times I've had in a long time. Right? Now, if two women are together for six hours and they talk 20 minutes, you know what that means? They are mad at each other. Now, that's just reality, right? I mean, we've, we've seen those statistics. And so, here's what has to happen in a marriage. Women, you have to figure out ways to do shoulder-to-shoulder things with your husband. And husbands, you've got to figure out ways to do face-to-face things with your wives. So women, find, a, find something he enjoys doing and say, man, I'd love to go along. If he's watching a ball game on TV, sit down. And, now, don't ask him a question every two or three minutes, but try to figure out some things. Try to figure out what's going on. Watch with him. Just say, wow, that looked like a good play, or you really like that guy. All right? Now, you kind of come up with that. Don't, don't be the, like Luther's wife and ask crazy questions in the midst of it, all right? Guys, take some time to listen to your wives. Put the cell phone away, put the laptop down, turn the TV off, and just listen. 
It's amazing. I heard some moans when I said turn the TV off, alright? Just listen. Don't fix, just listen. A great marriage relationship involves friendship that is both shoulder to shoulder and face to face. Friendship should be intimate. Here's the third thing. Friendship in marriage should be fun. Amen? Often life is not much fun. Between the sins we commit, the sins committed against us, we are like Jeremiah that says, Why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow? But friendship with your spouse can make a world of difference. Someone you know you can have a good time with, you can relax, you can go on a venture. In fact, God commands married couples to have fun. Go eat your bread with joy. For God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white. Let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which He has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity. For that is your portion in life and in labor which you perform. Now, that comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Anybody read Ecclesiastes lately? We're doing a Bible study on it some. Ecclesiastes, if you're not careful, can be the most depressing book on the face of the planet. Over and over, it talks about all this stuff that's going wrong. And there's this word that's used over 30 times. That is, life is, and it's this word. And it can mean vanity. It can mean meaningless. It can be really depressing. Or, it can just mean short. And I don't know that in Ecclesiastes, it always means exactly the same thing. And I think one of the things it's saying here is, life is short. Have a good time with your wife in the midst of that. Enjoy one another. Someone has said that your life can seem like five days. Your marriage can seem like five days. The first day you meet, the second day you marry, the third day you raise your children, the fourth day you meet your grandchildren, and the fifth day you die first or bury your spouse to go home alone for the first time in years. There are some of you in this room right now that had great marriages for many years, and you know, now that you have lost your significant other, how fleeting life can be. The question is, are you taking full advantage of the here and now? Enjoy it. Here's the last thing. Friendship and marriage should be sanctifying. That's a good church word, isn't it? Sanctifying. Sounds like I'm going to start preaching like an old school preacher. Author Gary Thomas asked this question. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? It says in Ephesians chapter 5, right before it talks about this reason a man will leave is to be joined, that the husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave to make her holy, cleansing her. The idea is that marriage is about us coming together and figuring out each other. Someone has said this, What is marriage for? It is for helping each other to become our future selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. A husband and wife look towards the holy, spotless, blameless throne of God, and we look there thinking about how we can help one another reach that goal. 
You know what people discover pretty quickly after marriage? Is that their spouse is not perfect. Amen? And neither are they. Amen? And the idea of a good marriage is that you help the other person towards the goal of who God is. Now, some of you go, that is exactly what I've been trying to do for 20 years now. You know what dates are? Dates are extended lies. Right? When you go on a date, what do you try to do? Put your absolute best foot forward. You try to... you. Here's the thing. Susan and I, when we dated, I look back and I think I was, I was not completely honest with her because I was afraid if I'm completely honest with who I am, guess what? She's going to walk. But here's the thing. Once you get married, you can only hide that stuff for so long. Right? My wife realizes all of the imperfections that are in my life, of which there are many. She knows the things that I do that drive her absolutely nuts. She knows that I am and always a guy, and I, for some reason, like to leave wet towels laying on the bed. And my socks end up in the living room, and I don't have a thing to keep everything perfectly clean. I know that some of you are just appalled by all that. And that that is probably the best about the worst of me. There's some bad stuff. Scripture teaches us that without Christ, none of us have hope. And if you were to delve into the minds and the hearts of everyone in this room, we all have things that need to be chiseled away and taken away. Amen? And it says in Scripture that part of what we are to do in this friendship is to help one another to become like Christ. You've heard the story probably of Michelangelo when he was asked about how he did the statue of David. You know that masterpiece statue? They asked him, how did you do that? He said, I just looked at the block of stone and realized what parts of it weren't David. And I chiseled them away. Part of what marriage friendship is about is looking at the blocks of stone and realizing what parts aren't in the holy person that God has called us to be. Ephesians chapter 5 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Let me ask you a question this morning as we get ready for a time of invitation. Where's your life with the Lord? And then if you're married, where's your life with your spouse? I just think about how different it would be if our society, even our church culture, was focused not on how do we find a wife or find a husband and he meets all these criteria, but if we were focused on who is it that God intends for me to be in such an intimate friendship with that we can push each other towards His glory and what He wants us to be. This morning, let me ask you a question. If you're married, is your marriage right now back to back? Is it shoulder to shoulder or is it face to face?